Professor Richard Wolff is one of America's leading Marxist economists. He is a visiting professor in the Julian J. Studley Graduate Programs in International Affairs at the New School and Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is also the founder of the non-profit media Democracy at Work and the host of the weekly show Economic Update. His latest book, The Sickness is the System. When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, it's a collection of essays where he argues why there's a need for a new economic system that works for all. Our editorial board had the honor of interviewing him recently. We're excited to present to you the recording of the same. I can hear you. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we are really honored to have you today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad that you're interested. <laughs> Thank you. Um, sir, can we record this interview so that we can transcribe it later? Yes, absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Um, I think everyone is thoroughly aware of who you are and we are really short on time because you're obviously very busy. So I think we can just straight away start off with the questions. Is that all right? Yes. Great. Um, Harita, can you start? I think whoever's next can go ahead. I think she's having some difficulties with her internet. So whoever's next can go ahead. Hello, sir. It's great to have you with us. So, so during the pandemic, across the world, governments have been announcing Keynes-inspired stimulus packages or relief packages, and they're all intended to boost demand. However, this type of state intervention historically seems to you know, end up with another crisis every few decades anyway. So if it were to put on the textbook benevolent planner role, is there anything the state can do in a capitalist system to prevent an economic crisis? Um. The short answer is no. And the reason I say that is because of the 300 years of the history of capitalism. If you follow the general economic history, modern capitalism begins in England around the 17th century, more or less, spreads to Western Europe, North America, Japan, and then through the colonial system, pretty much everywhere else. So we have modern capitalism as a global system. So if you look at these three centuries, wherever capitalism has come to settle, it has demonstrated the same identical instability. It is either called a crisis or a business cycle or a boom bust cycle or a recession or a depression or a, I mean, the words are endless. In, in English and in every other language, because it is a recurring phenomenon. Uh, the best research I've ever seen indicates that it happens on average in economic downturn every four to seven years. That's an average. So sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer, but you can see the system has built into it a structural instability. And here's another way to look at it. Capitalists have understood for 300 years that this instability is dangerous for their system. 
Because when periodically you throw millions of people out of work, as we are doing today, if you show millions of businesses that they must now go bankrupt, that they must cease functioning, which is again happening today, then it doesn't take a genius to understand that in those periods of downturn, of crash, of recession, some people, for example, people like me, are going to become critical of a system that has such built-in instability. And so the capitalist system understood that its own instability made it vulnerable to criticism, particularly systemic critics, or in a short term, socialists, communists, people who want to go to another system. So they had every incentive to do whatever they could, either to soften these cycles, or better yet, to get rid of them, to end them, to stop them. They've tried everything for three centuries. Very smart people, smart men, smart women got together, tried to figure out how to get rid of this instability. In the depths of the greatest depression capitalism has so far experienced, the 1930s, you even had a new kind of economics developed from John Maynard Keynes that we teach, Keynes in economics and how the government can use monetary and fiscal policy to try to do this. When I give speeches here in the United States, I explain that every president of the United States since Franklin Roosevelt of the 1930s has promised the people of America that if they follow his policies, not only will they get out of the recession they're in, because every president has one, but each president promised that if they do what he suggests, follow economic policy, they will save their children from having to go through another economic crash. Every president promised, no president has ever fulfilled that promise. No president could do it. And that's why we're going through the one we have now. In short, capitalism has tried to get rid of the business cycle and it has failed over and over again to do so. Again, let me use just the United States. We have had three crises in this new century. We had what we call the dot-com crisis in the spring of the year 2000. We had the subprime mortgage crisis in the year 2008. And now we have the COVID-19 crisis in the year 2020. Three crises in 20 years, exactly on schedule, four to seven year average. So if you don't want the instability, if you don't want to threaten your people with a system that every four to seven years crashes, then your problem isn't the cycle. Your problem is the capitalist system which brings this cycle to you 
and has done it everywhere for 300 years. Thank you so much for answering that. Um, so my question to you is that with the market of the vaccine continuously developing into a competitive sector, how do you think capitalism will affect its distribution? And additionally, in your opinion, how do you think the economies of developing countries like India will react if and when there is a delay to access? Well, there is already a delay to access. It is a mistake a serious mistake to permit private capitalist enterprises to be in charge in any sense of the distribution of the vaccine. Let me explain. A capitalist enterprise is an enterprise organized with a particular prioritized objective, and that is profit to generate a profit, to maximize the difference between the revenues and the costs so that a profit can be achieved, which can be distributed to the owners, which can be used to expand the business. It can be used in whatever way the owners and leaders of enterprise, a very small minority of the people, what they think is the best way to utilize those profits. It makes no sense. It is a fundamentally irrational thing if you give the task of public health to an institution whose priority is something else. This would be the equivalent of saying to your uh, police department that their job is to teach students in school. No. That's somebody else's priority. It's not your priority as a police person or a fire protector or any other function. The reason we separate functions and make them priorities is to get a better outcome. Therefore, the question is what in the world would make you give the task of public health, preserving the health, maintaining the health, protecting the health, to an institution whose priority is somewhere else. Let me drive it home to you with an example. Again, I apologize. I can give you examples easiest from the United States because I am, for better or worse, and these days it's worse, I'm an American, okay? So that's what I have to do. Here in the United States, we have a highly privatized medical system, one of the most privatized in the world compared even to most countries, your country, European countries, and so on. Okay, we therefore left it in the hands of the private sector to be prepared for the arrival of the coronavirus. We all knew that viruses are part of, the, of nature. We had, a, the last time we had a bad virus in the United States was in 1918, roughly 100 years ago. It killed 700,000 people. We know very well what viruses can do. Plus, we are very aware of the SARS virus, the MERS virus, the Ebola virus. Everyone knows that viruses are a problem and that if viruses come, 
We need to have tests. We need to have masks. We need to have hospital beds. We need to have ventilators. We need those things. And here in the United States, we have the manufacturing capability to produce all those things. But when the COVID virus hit the United States in March of 2020, last year, we didn't have adequate supplies of masks or tests or ventilators or anything else. Why not? Answer, it wasn't privately profitable to do that. The companies that could have made tests, we have them. We have the raw materials, we have the labor, we have the technology, we have everything we needed to produce and to stockpile around the country supplies of tests and masks and everything else. But we didn't, and we didn't for a simple reason. It's not profitable, it's too risky for a private capitalist. And the explanation is simple. If I'm a capitalist and I produce masks or tests, I have to spend money. I have to buy the materials. I have to have the machinery. I have to pay the workers. And then what do I have? I have lots of tests or masks or ventilators. Now I have to store them in a warehouse around the country. I have to secure them in the warehouse. I have to make sure they stay clean. I have to replace those that, that deteriorate. I have to repair those that are broke. I have a lot of expenses. When will I be able to sell the masks and the tests? I don't know. The next virus may come in six months. It may come in 50 years. There's too much risk, too much expense. And so what the capitalists did, which is what they're supposed to do, they invested somewhere else. They made a different product. They made a different system. And they didn't make the masks. And they didn't make the tests. So capitalism, and there's no nice way to say this unless you're an apologist for capitalism, which you can probably tell I am not, okay? So here's the nice way to say this. Capitalism is a very bad way to organize public health. Because we have just seen, by the way, we have just gone over in the United States 350,000 deaths, dead Americans, from this virus. So this is a fatal failure of capitalism to make us unprepared. And you really can't fault the capitalist because the capitalists who made these decisions were doing what they were taught to do when they all got their Master of Business Administration certificate from the university. Now, of course, the government could have stepped in we all know how we fix the failures of capitalism. We bring the government in to do what the capitalists failed to do. So the government could have come in. The government could have said to the capitalist, okay, you produce the mask. We, the government, using public money, taxpayer money, we will buy the mask from you as fast as you produce it and the ventilator, and the hospital bed, and the test equipment, and then at government public expense, 
we will store it in warehouses around the country and we will clean it and we will keep it secure and all the risk is taken away and we will pay you a price that makes you a big fat profit because that's the ransom that capitalism demands from the people so long as people are willing to pay the ransom that capitalists charge us. So the interesting question is, why doesn't the government do that? And an even more interesting question is, the government already does it somewhere else, why isn't it doing it in public health? And to make sure you understand where the government already does it, because this is very like India too, it turns out that private capitalists have the same problem producing military equipment. If the, if the private producer of the gun or the airplane or the tank or the missile, if that private producer had to make that and then store it in a warehouse and have to wait until the next war comes, it would be too risky, not profitable. No defense equipment would be produced. And you should enjoy the irony. Capitalism is as poor a choice for public health as it is for the military. But in the case of the military, we solved it, didn't we? The government comes in, buys the missile as fast as it comes off the assembly line, buys the guns, buys the ships, buys the airplanes, and then at public expense, stores it, maintains it, secures it, fixes it, updates it, enormous expense. Meanwhile, it pays the military producer capitalist a good price, a very profitable price, and takes away all risk. So the governments do what I'm describing for the military, but they don't do it for public health. If we had more time, I would stop now and I would play you the national anthem of the United States, just so you could appreciate the charming quality that capitalism brings wherever it pollutes the environment. Well, you might be interested to know why the government didn't do for public health what it does for military. And the answer is, the private health system of the United States is a monopoly of four industries that work together. Doctors, hospitals, drug and device makers, and medical insurance companies. They have control of the private health center. Every effort to produce a public health program that would give universal support to people the way you have in every European country and in many countries beyond Europe as well. They have been fighting that successfully for a century. They don't want the government anywhere near the medical profession because of the risk that the American people will begin to demand a public health system and then their private monopoly will be gone. That's their problem. That's why we have, that's why we have a disaster on our hands.
Capitalism is a very poor way to organize a health system. And it is equally horrible as a way of handling the vaccine system. In order to make vaccines profitable, they are going to be distributed to those who can pay the most. Don't be fooled. There'll be lots of words, lots of politicians mumbling junk. Don't waste your time. This is a capitalist system. The vaccine is being distributed here in the United States in a very controlled way. If you follow the value of shares, trading hands on the New York Stock Exchange, you will see the remarkable increase in the value of shares of pharmaceutical companies because everybody knows they are making a killing, boy, do I mean that literally, by the way that they are handling vaccines. So the poorest are going to get it last if they get it at all. And when there are a few exceptions, and there always are, for example, uh, exceptions of people who work in hospitals or people who work in other kinds of dangerous areas, they will be very uh, big television stories about the wonderful nurse who got a vaccine or the wonderful orderly in the hospital. It's all window dressing. Don't be fooled. The basic vaccines at this point are available if you have the money. I live in New York City. I'm speaking to you from downtown New York City. I called my, I'm a professor. My wife is a psychotherapist. We have a very nice, comfortable income. We are in the upper 20% of income in this country. I called my doctor who is on Park Avenue. If you ever come to New York, Park Avenue is a very elegant uh, avenue here in New York City. My doctor is on Park Avenue. I called him last week. I said to him, when can I get the, virus, uh, the, uh, the vaccine? And he said to me, well, I would guess maybe in March or April. Call me back then. I said to him, well, what do I have to do to get it sooner? He said, I can give you the name of another doctor that you can call, but it will cost you a pretty penny. That was his phrase, a pretty penny. I don't know what that means, but I think you get the idea. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, sir, you recently, a couple of months back, you had an interview with a YouTuber named Mexi, and you were talking about how um, you think that in US, UK, Japan, capitalism, you're kind, you were kind of being optimistic and saying that capitalism has almost reached its end and 
you know, it, it's almost reached a tipping point. However, developing countries like India, um, Brazil, China, they have not yet reached the tipping point because they came to the party late. That's what you said. Uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit more on that? And is uh, the general strike in India that's going on right now, is that a direction towards that tipping point? Or are we still a long way? Do we still have a long way to go? Well, you know, I, I'm not good at making predictions. I always thought that if you want to make a prediction, you should go to the county fair uh, and give that person a, a, few, a few dollars and he or she will tell you who you're going to be sleeping with next week and you will giggle and you'll laugh because you understand it's entertainment. If you actually got nervous because you don't want to sleep with that person next week, uh, then you have misunderstood what the point of all of this is. It's an entertainment. It's not seriously, uh, nobody is able to tell you what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. Uh, what I was trying to suggest was that, and I say this because you don't know me personally, but I have, I'm not an alarmist. I haven't been saying for a long time that capitalism in the United States is declining. This is something that I have come to slowly and recently. The accumulation of evidence here in the United States, which is arguably the most powerful, more, the, the evidence here of disintegration is overwhelming. I assume you have seen the pictures earlier this week of the disintegration in our nation's capital. Uh, you will be hearing more about that. Uh, it, it's falling apart. We have a president who is, a, is somewhere between uh, an idiot and a clown. And he's being replaced by someone who's already three quarters dead. I mean, we, we have a serious difficulty. We are producing leaders that are bad jokes. And they don't have any policy to solve anything. And they're not solving anything. Inequality in this country is at a level, you know, when we make comparisons with ancient Egypt and the Pharaoh, Jeffrey Bezos, the, the guy who owns uh, Amazon, has a personal fortune of $200 billion. He has become $60 billion richer over the last 10 months, while 60 million Americans had to file for unemployment compensation because they have no job. This is not a system that's working well. This is a system that's falling apart. Trump is a symptom. The assault on the Capitol is a symptom. The fact that I have huge audiences for what I do around the United States, that's also a symptom. It's a system that's falling apart. And one of the major reasons is that the profit motive driving American corporations, and indeed corporations from other parts of the world, Europe, Japan, and so on, they are leaving the United States. They've been leaving it for 30 years. They're moving production out of the United States because wages are too high. Or to say th the same thing, wages are much lower in places like uh, 
my apologies, India or Bangladesh or Malaysia or Indonesia, you know better than I do what is going on. And that hasn't stopped. There's lots of publicity or we're going to bring manufacturing back. No, we're not. Obama promised to do that. He failed. Trump promised to do that. He failed. Biden will promise to do it. And I guarantee you, he will fail. The Chinese economy is now the ascending global capitalist power. The United States is declining. India is somewhere in between. Brazil is somewhere in between. I don't know how this will work, but I do know that every American corporation that I speak to, and I should explain to you that partly because I am a product of the elite universities of the United States, even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm a poor parent, my parents were poor immigrants. My, my father was French. My mother was German. English is my third language, etc., etc. But I was born in the United States. I'm an American. But I went to Harvard and Yale and all of that. And as a result, I know all these people personally. They are done with the United States. If they are the heads of a corporation, as many of them are, they want to go where the wages are lower and the market is bigger. And there is a place on earth where the wages are lower and the market is much bigger. And it's called the People's Republic of China. And that's what capitalists respond to because they have to. That's the competitive objective they have. Their competitors are already doing it. If they don't do it too, they're finished. And when it comes to the end of my company and my reputation as an executive versus my patriotism, that's an easy choice. Patriotism out the window. So this isn't going to stop. The United, it's not a question now of whether the United States declines. It's really only a question of what the steps are, what the pace is, what form it will take. But now to answer your question, what, what is going to happen in a place like India is very similar to what is going to happen in a place like Brazil. So here's the problem. You're not, all due respect, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not evaluating it. But you're not in the situation of China. You don't have the world market that the Chinese have built over the last 40 years. There are many reasons for that, but that is the reality. So you're going through a rapid growth, but you know, capitalism, when it has had rapid growth, has often overshot the mark. That happened in Europe, that happened in the United States. We've had general strikes here. We've had a very rough, bitter struggle between capital and labor throughout the history of American capitalism and European capitalism. You're having that in India. I'm not surprised. That's what happens when you have capitalist development. You can soften the blow, soften it, if you're very successful. The history of the United States is precisely 
that because the United States was able to get huge profits after the Civil War from roughly 1870 to roughly 1970, that century, because the United States was in a very special position then, a little bit like the Chinese now, they got enough profits that for that entire period, they could raise wages too. They never raised the wages as much as the profits. Inequality was very bad, but they were able, and this is a very important fact, from 1870 to 1970, every decade, the real wages of American workers went up. It gave Americans the idea that they live in a charmed place. It gave rise to notions like the American dream or American exceptionalism. It gave the idea that every generation will live at a higher standard of living than their parents. Because for a century it was true. In 1970 it stopped. And the United States has been in a cultural and political crisis ever since. It had no way to anticipate this. It had no way to think about it. Its leadership denied it. And it survived only because since 1970, when wages have not gone up, the real wage in the United States is the same now as it was 40 years ago. How has the standard of living risen? Answer, debt. Americans are pioneers in the amount of debt per person. Debt to buy your home, debt to buy your car, debt with your credit card to buy everything. And in the last 20 years, the new one, debt to send your child to college. The level of debt of the American working class is literally killing them. So you have a very fragile system and you in India are facing a capitalism growing quickly, but not rich enough, not in the position the United States was or the Chinese are. You may get to that. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. And if you do get to it, your capitalists may be smart enough to keep the system going by sharing some of the profit in the form of rising real wages. The Chinese have done that. Real wages have risen in China over the last 30 years. If you've never looked at those numbers, look at them. They are very impressive. And it explains why the Chinese government is in a much more secure position with its people than the American government has been and will be for the foreseeable future. So I think the question is, you're going to have capital and labor struggles because your capitalism is always in the shadow of the declining but still strong capitalisms of the West and the rising power of the capitalism to your East. And that's gonna create a very special set of problems for Indian capital.